I'm Tom Henley, and this is Saga. Saga is a podcast about the unknown or underrated stories to come out of Sweden. That's the whole point of me doing this. I want to share with you the fascinating stories I have discovered living here for the past year. But even if you know next to nothing about Sweden, I reckon you probably know a handful of things at least. Like ABBA, or IKEA, or maybe even Björnborg. Another phrase you probably have heard is Stockholm Syndrome. 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 It's an example of Stockholm Syndrome. Someone is kidnapped and they fall in love with their capital. Today's episode is about the original hostage situation that gave way to that phrase. It is one woman's memories of six days in hell. And by the end, you may just think differently about how we see the very idea of Stockholm Syndrome. Today's story comes from Christine Enmark. My name is Christine Enmark. I grew up in the north of Sweden, small villages. And uh, when I was about 20, you know, you couldn't get work there. It was uh, many people who didn't have work. So I, have, I was engaged with a boy and he got a job here in Stockholm. Uh, and I also got the job here in a bank. So Kristen moves out of her quiet, dull village life, and straight away she lands a job at the credit bank in Norrmalmstorg Square in the centre of Stockholm. She didn't know it at the time, but this job, her very first, would change and shape the rest of her life. It was the 23rd of August 1973. The summer was ending, but the heat was intense that day. I woke up, as I always did, about around 7, I think, because the bus that I was taking was leaving at eight quarter past eight. I had my ordinary breakfast. I was a little bit tired because I had met some friends the night before. But I was feeling well and then I came to work. It was a quite an ordinary day. Uh, and there was this boy who was working in the bank hall and I had a little crush on him. I don't know if he ever knew but I took some papers, you know, moved around, stopped and talked to him. When suddenly Janne, who is the bank robber, came in. So I was at the wrong place at the wrong time. Wrong place at the wrong time, with the wrong kind of person entering the bank with a submachine gun in his hands. His name was Janne Olsson. He was a petty thief, a low-scale criminal. He'd robbed banks before, small ones. He had never done anything like what he was starting to do on that late August day. This was new territory for everyone, Janne, Kristen, and Sweden itself. I didn't see him because it, it was a huge bank. What I heard was these shots. It's, it's a marble hole, you know, so the bullets... So it was a very big sound. You know, I, when I heard it, I directly, I don't know why, I got down on the floor. And then I was lying on the floor and I looked around. Everybody was sitting up and I thought, I must have overreacted or something. How, how I'm going to 
get out of this, say, oh, I just fell, or because everybody was sitting, but it was quiet. And then the other came down on the floor too. And then he shouted, the party has started, get down on the floor. And then he pointed out uh, three of us girls. I, it was just nameless dread, is the best word I can say. Nameless, I, I couldn't think. I just did what he said. And then the police came. At this point, there were only two policemen who had been patrolling in the area. They were alerted by a silent alarm, which had been triggered in the bank. The first cop arrived in another part of the hall, armed with a handgun, versus Janne and his submachine gun. It was a stair far away, and they, they, uh, they, um, they said, we are the police, and they pointed at him with this <laughs> very small <laughs> pistol. And then Janne shot, and he hurt a policeman in, uh, very badly, actually, in the head. Uh, so he couldn't work as a policeman anymore. So now one policeman with a bullet hole in his hand was writhing on the floor, and Janne told the other one to sit on a chair and start singing a song. The officer nervously started singing Lonesome Cowboy. I am just a lonesome cowboy. A quick note on Yana's outfit. Before entering the bank, he had been in the corner shop across the road. It was there where he donned his brown, oversized wig, pasted the black cream on his face, and slid on the sunglasses he had in his breast pocket. He later said he was trying to look like an Arab terrorist. Then, he casually walked over to the bank and let the first bullets fly. And now that the police had been alerted, the robbery became a hostage standoff. And it's important to say, this was 1973. The Stockholm police didn't have a lot of experience handling an unpredictable hostage situation in the city centre with the perpetrator who outgunned most of the policemen. What happened next was going to have to be an experiment to try and resolve the situation without a lot of people getting killed. Janne had already detonated explosives in a hallway of the bank to demonstrate that he could blow things up. And then he took another hostage, a man. So now there are four, including Kristen. Then, finally, he started dictating his demands. Uh, well, I remember he said he wanted three million kroner, he wanted Clark Olofsson, and he wanted a car. And when he said Clark Olofsson, I thought, oh, holy shit, because he was a very famous, very dangerous man. Clark Olofsson was one of Sweden's most infamous criminals. Swashbuckling and good-looking, he has often been called Sweden's first pop gangster. He was a man who, at the time of the robbery at the credit bank, was sitting in a maximum security prison after an already impressive criminal resume considering he was only 26 at the time. He had robberies and police assaults and attempted murder and prison break after prison break to his name. Only two weeks before, he had tried to escape by blowing up the door to his cell. He was a celebrity of a criminal. And now, here was a small-timer, Janne Olsson, demanding that the authorities release his hero to join him and the hostages in Norman Stork Square. And eventually... The police agreed to the demand. They took Clark out of his prison cell and brought him over a hundred miles to the bank in Stockholm. So now there were six. Two criminals, one famous, one desperate for attention, four hostages, one of them Kristen, who could not believe that the police had gone along with Janne's demand. And I thought, this is enough. We can't have another one here. This is going to 
this is this this can't happen this is really bad maybe they thought that he would uh, uh, talk Jan out of it or uh, knock him down <laughs> I, I don't know I, I think that they had this idea that he was going to uh, unarm him no that didn't happen in the beginning, I think that Clark didn't want to end it because he saw a chance of coming out. But then, as time passed by, I think that it would have been difficult for him to do it. But what happened was that that um, Clark said that we could, we didn't have to sit, because you know the police is all over the place. You can see them pointing with with their guns because he was sitting isolated in a prison in Norrköping, had no contact with, with other people. They took him to Stockholm. They told him that if you go down and get this over with, unarm this man, who, they didn't know who he was, then maybe we can get you a shorter sentence here. He's been sitting there for so long, it was coming down, he, he, he had this opportunity to get away. I think it's stupid. But once Clark came and joined the group, tensions immediately began to ratchet down in the bank. Well, when he came, I was I was very frightened for him, of course, uh, because I read a lot of things about him. But when he came, Janne became calmer. He said, you can't have the girls tied up. You can't have it like this. And he untied us and he said, it's... We're going to, don't worry, don't worry, we're going to fix this. But outside, the bizarre arrival of the famous criminal to the ongoing bank siege turned all eyes towards Norman Storg Square. Swedish television began to broadcast the events live, the first time that had ever happened. A strange back and forth began, where the police would give interviews from the outside, while Clark and Jana listened in on the radio, then called in to present their side of the negotiations. They didn't have much of a negotiator. Clark was their negotiator, but but, but he, he had his own plan. He wanted to get out. But it was the first time it happened in Sweden. But it was very unprofessional, of course. There was no template for how the hostage negotiations would be handled. They were making it up as they went along. And it was all happening a few weeks before the national elections. The hostage siege had become the most important story in the country. So Olaf Palmer, Sweden's prime minister, decided that he needed to be involved in the negotiations and was put in phone contact with Janne. But the conversation went very badly. Janne told Palmer that he was ready to start killing hostages before he hung up. But then, a day later, the Prime Minister received another phone call. This time, it came from Kristin Enmark. Someone said, we, I don't know who, said we should call Palmer. And I said, I do it. <laughs> you know, when you're in that situation, and you can't control things. So I think I took a chance to make an effort to to control. I didn't know how we got the, the number put the, to the where he was. He was at his work, and I called and and uh, said um, who I was and that I wanted to talk to Ola Palme. And she said, uh, "Wait a minute, he's sleeping. Uh, can you wait?" And I said, "Yes." But we are we are uh, we are in a quite a bad situation here. And then he said, "Are you?" 
What should she say? And then it came. Obviously, he was. He has been sleeping, and we talked about an hour. That wouldn't happen to me. Kristin scandalized the Swedish public when she angrily told Palmer that she was not afraid of the bank robbers at all. She trusted them. Her fear was that the bumbling police would get them all killed. She asked the Prime Minister to release all of them, hostages and hostage takers. I begged him to let us go. I wanted out and I wanted home. I said that I was very disappointed at him. Uh, I said that I uh, had, it was true at that time, being a, uh, voted for his party. Mm. And he said, we can't let the terror take over. But I, I wish that this conversation never ha- happened yeah. because it was, it was no use. People didn't like what I, how I spoke to him. Meanwhile, Clark Olofsson paced the floor, singing to himself. The song he chose was Killing Me Softly. By this time, it was day three of the standoff. Clark wasn't stupid. He looked outside at the swarm of police who had now massively outnumbered Jana and his machine gun. Power to the bank had been cut. There was no food. And the police were no doubt planning some kind of assault. Clark told Janne that they needed to get somewhere more secure, somewhere hidden, so they all moved into the bank's massive vault. The vault had two heavy doors, one that you could lock from the outside and one that you could lock from the inside. Yana wedged a cabinet between the outside door and the inside door, which gave them enough of a hideaway from the police, and was intended to alert Yana if the police were approaching, as they would have had to move the cabinet out of the way and everyone would have heard that. But the group had now gone days without proper food and without enough sleep. So it happened that sometime, after the six of them had all fallen asleep due to complete exhaustion, the police came and shut the outside doors, effectively trapping all of them inside the vault, where they stayed for three days. This was when Jana stopped relaxing and became manic again. And in that, when that happened, nobody could have persuaded Jana to give up. Even if somebody had could take the, the gun, it was... But they, they looked, and I don't, this is, I have some things that I am very angry or upset. And I think this locking us in was one of these. Well, I didn't think about it, but Jan and Clark said they're probably doing this so they, they can put in gas. Hoping to keep the police from dropping sleeping gas into the vault, Jana made makeshift nooses for the four hostages, put them around their necks and told them with his machine gun in their faces that they should stay standing up. If they sat down, or if the police indeed gassed them as he and Clark predicted, the hostages would choke themselves to death. We had no toilets, of course, but there were these paper bags, Mm. so that was not a problem. We didn't get too much to eat. My memory is that it was dark about 12, 13 hours, you know, or I mean dark, you know, couldn't see anything. Uh, After all these days, in there, we were very exhausted, of course, and, and all the time it was, is, are the police going to put in gas or not? What's, what's happening? We were hungry, we were tired. 
And uh, Jan had said to us, um, if the police put in gas, I'm going to shoot you. And that's only for one reason. Because if you're inside a room with gas and you don't get out uh, before 15 minutes, you get brain damaged. And I don't want you to have that. Well, nice guy, huh? He's not the brightest knife in the box, if you say so. The days drew on and on, both hostages and captors, suffering through hours of darkness and lack of sleep. We now know that the phenomenon, which has come to be known as Stockholm Syndrome, is a form of traumatic bonding. It's typical in abusive relationships and can create emotional connections between people that are profound and very difficult to ever break. It was during this time that Kristin and Clark started to draw closer to each other. He persuaded Jana to let the hostages take breaks from standing upright in the nooses that hung from the vault ceiling. You know, Clark took me under his wings. He said that uh, you can sit here beside me when we had time to to uh, rest. He said you can lie here, comfort you. I'm going to see that nothing is going to happen to you. I, I choose to believe it. So in that at that moment, maybe there was some hope. Six days had passed. Suddenly, in the middle of all the darkness, a thin beam of light appeared. And then, gas canister after gas canister began to fall through a new hole in the roof. Jana went into a panic. And when the gas came, I was getting hot. He said, get up, girls. And I thought he was hot. So I tried to hide behind this, you know, put myself in there, that maybe the bullets will go that way. But then, <coughs> then uh, he said I gave up. And then I got the, an extreme adrenaline kick when Janne had said, he's, he, I'm giving up. And when he shouted, I gave up, I think we all shouted, he's giving up, he's giving up, he's giving up, you know. I was shouting, he's giving up, he's giving up. I wanted to I wanted to take his gun and put it up. I told the police to shut up. I said, you're nuts, you have to wait. I, did some, I was crazy and I was so angry, I was so angry. And then when they opened the door, two guys, um, no shirt, camouflage and camouflage sudden uh, uh, guns that were cut off that was taken from some robbery somewhere. It was so crazy. The gas was still filling up the room, but there was a disagreement over who should leave first. The police asked for the hostages, but even though Jan had all but given up, he still had one last demand. He wanted to leave first. He was afraid that he and Clark would be left behind in the vault and the police would have their revenge. If you go out first, they're going to kill us. The hostages agreed, and Clark and Jana left first. The group all embraced as the man left the vault. I, I don't like Jana at all. But they took him out and went in front of the journalist and the police. And everybody was, so, paraded him. And then when, when we get out, got out, they were beating up Clark. So, and I said, he, he hasn't done anything. And, you know, I was, I was so angry. I was so angry for the whole situation. And I'm still is very, I can't understand. 
our government land, a police force, can put in gas. Six people. You know what you do with rats? You put in gas. I think it's 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 I think it's a it's attempted murder. The last thing Kristen said to Clark was, "I will see you again." She was driven straight to a hospital where she was given bread and salami, but for her, it was the best meal of her life. I think I was in the hospital about for a week, and I think that was quite good, uh, because I think I needed. And when I read, you know, I, I took out the journals from the hospital. When I describe how scared I was at night, they gave me a lot of, of uh, tranquilizer. I couldn't sleep. I just woke up. So what they, I could sleep because they, they had this nurse to sit in our man. And it's, it's. I was, you know, I was twenty three. Hmm. I think I needed it that week uh, because there is also a description that, that we were uh, totally manic, all of us. Mm. When we saw each other, we were yeah, to- totally manic, of course. Manic of, of being alive and not wanting want to think about what has happened. And so, so I think that was a good, a good thing. It's okay. It's, it's okay. Mm. Swedes who read the newspapers were dumbfounded that Kristin and the other hostages could be so attached to the people who put nooses around their necks. There was even speculation that they must have been involved with the robbery in some way. It's important to me to talk about the, the, the word, the Stockholm Syndrome, because it's been so, so uh, worldwide. And people say that the Stockholm Syndrome, that uh, the hostage begins to like slash love, the captures and when it, when you call it a syndrome, you know a syndrome. It's it's uh, indicates that you're ill in some way. You know it's it's kind of blaming the victim. The focus became on how we or how I behaved, and not of what Janne did, what Clark did, what the police did, what the government did, what all this country did. So all the focus became on how could they. How could she said that he wanted to go with them? How could she talk to the prime minister in that way? How, like, how could she do that? How could she do that? So I always felt that I did something wrong. In August of 1973, Kristen was 20 years old and her first big city job, but she found herself in a nightmare, convinced she was about to die, deprived of food and sleep, locked in the dark for days and abandoned by her government and her country. At her very darkest point in the vault, there was only one person who provided her any kind of hope or compassion, Clark Olofsson. He meant very much to me in, in, uh, when we were there, and I think that in, in some way he had a big impact on saving my mental status. I think that maybe I, I would have been feeling worse or if he hadn't been there comforting me. So, But it was not, no... It was no love, it was just comforting. Their unusual relationship was forged from six days of trauma. And then uh, after a year or one and a half, he started to write to me. And um, they were more and more 
sexual undertones in the letters. And so I, <laughs> I went, wow. <laughs> so so uh, over, over the years, we have, not now, it was long ago, but over the years, we had uh, a sexual relation. We met sometimes, not very often. We were never a couple. And now we are, we have, uh, we write letters sometimes mm. to each other, but th there's nothing no. left for me, or I don't think for him either, in that uh, uh, thrill. Saga is me, Tom Henley. The theme tune is done by the wonderful Anton Beckman. And today I want to thank Bob Carson from the Unfictional Podcast for his help on the script. Join me in two weeks' time for another saga. <laughs>